Well, good evening, Wednesday Night Bible Study Group, and welcome back to our study. Uh, If you're a guest with us, I welcome you, and I'm just glad to come uh, into God's Word with you tonight. Of course, tonight we're going to be going back uh, to Genesis chapter 4. Last week we went all the way from chapter 4 to chapter 11 in a brief overview of sin and its development in the world, and I said we would go back and take things a little slower uh, after we got that overview, and that's what we're going to do tonight. And we want to commit this study to prayer, and as we do uh, go before the Lord in prayer, I'm going to ask you to share in a few prayer requests. First, uh, let's give a a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of praise to God for the birth of Evangeline Seaver to Robert and Natalie Seaver uh, early in the wee Monday morning hours, uh, eight pounds exactly, 21 inches long. Uh, We just want to pray that uh, everything is is going well in her young life and development, that big brother, big sister, Cordelia and Ben uh, receive little Evangeline home as part of the family and that they can just build some wonderful memories together. Also, uh, for grandparents and family, we're praying for you guys too. Also, today, uh, I want to ask you to be in prayer for uh, David Russell and for Caitlin Fisher, uh, fiancés, David Russell's mom, Becky Russell, uh, had her gallbladder out and has some complications following that surgery and is possibly facing another surgery to remove some stones that they found around her liver. And so we want to pray for that uh, secondary surgery as well as for her encouragement uh, in a hospital with, uh, of course, no visitors. We also want to be in prayer for Bob Baird's brother-in-law, Charles Warren, uh, who was taken to hospital in Zanesville, Virginia with a low heart rate and some failing kidneys and doctors were going to be putting in a pacemaker to help with that low heart rate and we want to pray for Charles and his wife Dorothy uh, also the sister to to Bob Baird. I also received a note today that uh, Adam Keese's stepmom Delight Keese she continues to need our prayers following her surgery to remove a clot from the back of her uh, head in North Carolina Uh, We just want to pray for her recovery and the follow-up there. And then I received a a message today from Rachel Parks that a young friend of hers, 14-year-old Landon Carey, a student at Springfield High School, committed suicide. And so we want to pray for the Carey family. We want to pray for Rachel and Angel and everyone that knew Landon. So I'm going to ask as we begin, if you would, just bow with me and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and it's no mistake that I I wanted to mention baby Evangeline first, because it's good to praise you, and it's good to put our hearts in the right perspective, because we know that even in the darkness of a night, in the wee hours of a morning, your faithfulness shows up, uh, Lord, uh, even through the fatigue, even through uh, the trauma of childbirth, and there's so much in this world that can just cause us great pain, and yet it's your good deeds. It's the joy that your hands produce that give us uh, just the profoundness of thought, that give us the sense of people who who know you and want to know you in a deeper way. And Father, you alone and forever will always be exalted. And I just ask you help us to get caught up in your spirit to do that every day of our life. Uh, Father, we recognize that we dwell in, in the shelter that only you provide as the one above us. And we rest in the shadow of your almighty, strong arm. And so, Father, for those that have uh, been through struggles, for those that have been through surgeries, we, we just want to remember them before you now. 
Lord, I thank you for Becky Russell and for watching over her through one surgery for her gallbladder, but uh, even having the fear of another surgery uh, for gallstones around her liver, even have the feelings of, of loneliness that come from being in the hospital, not being able to have guests. Lord, you're not restricted, and I know you can meet her there behind closed doors and gloves and masks, and I ask that you do that to encourage her heart as well as uh, her son David's heart and Caitlin as well. Father, I thank you for being there for Bob Baird and his sisters through so much in these past couple of years. Uh, now for his brother-in-law, Charles Warren, for his sister, Dorothy. Uh, Lord, as a pacemaker is considered and his uh, kidneys are treated, I pray for wisdom for the doctors and I pray for uh, the guidance of skilled hands to acknowledge that they're working on a, a son of your creation. Father, I thank you for the good result of Delight Keese's surgery to remove the clot from the back of her uh, skull. I ask that you help her in her recovery now. And then for Rachel and for the, the Carey family and the loss of this 14-year-old. Father, only you know what's going on in the heart at the time of a, a tragedy. And there's really no other way to, to call it than that. And so, Father, whatever faith we have, whatever hope we have, uh, we just place it in your hands. This world is full of traps, it's full of snares, it's full of lies and deadly things. And it's only as we come to be covered by, by your feathers, under the wings uh, of your refuge, that we will ever find the faithless we need to make it through this life. Uh, Lord, for all the things that raise the terror of our heart, and for all the wisdom that we need to make it through the valleys of the shadows in this world, we come to you. Because you are the, the Most High, you're the refuge that we need, you're our Lord, you're our Savior, you're the God that still speaks, and I ask that you do that through your word this day. And I pray all of this in, in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. <clears throat> well, I wanted to, to begin tonight, and, and I want to ask you if you do have scripture uh, to go back with me to Genesis, the fourth chapter. And uh, I want to begin by talking about the environment that we're seeing uh, around us these days. Not, not the coronavirus. I think we've probably talked enough about that lately. Uh, but I want to talk about the massive cultural shift that we're seeing going on. The Barna Research Group that uh, pastors have relied on for so long, uh, they talk about the rates of church attendance and religious affiliations, uh, belief in God and prayer, and Bible reading. But through all of those studies, one thing that they found is each one of those things have been uh, dropping for decades. And Americans' beliefs are becoming more post-Christian. And as a result, religious identity in America is, is changing. Uh, enter into that environment, uh, my daughter and her generation, uh, Generation Z that's growing up, and uh, for young people born anywhere between 1995 and 2015, 2016, uh, depending on what study you look at, uh, that group has several defining characteristics. They are the, the most ethically diverse generation in American history. They're individualistic, they're lonely, uh, but they are socially justice-oriented. Uh, it's no surprise that they are the generation that's been raised on technology Everything from uh, the old VCRs to DVDs to, to the I latest iPhone technology and pads now. Uh, but their lives are often built around an online world that we didn't really grow up with. 
Generation Z are activists, they're volunteers, they, they want to make an impact on the world. They were raised during the Great Recession and they value financial stability and so uh, a good job and a good income are important. But they account for over now a fourth of the American population and so things are changing. And they will uh, change the landscape more of our society with their ideas and values, many of which we're coming to see they omit the idea of Christian faith and the prospect of even being uh, members of, of a church. James White, in his groundbreaking book, Meet Generation Z, he said the most defining mark of members of Generation Z is in terms of their spiritual lives, is their spiritual illiteracy. They don't know what the Bible says. They don't know the basics of, of Christian belief or theology. They don't know what the cross is all about or even what it means to worship. And, and when it comes to worship, I hope you'll be able to see what this means in the context of Genesis 4 uh, with Cain and Abel in, in just a few moments. But the Barna Group characterizes Generation Z as the first truly post-Christian generation. Only 4% adhere to a biblical worldview. And the impact, the seismic changes in the churches that are coming are going to reflect that. And in this generation, they, they have a consensus that sincere belief equals absolute truth. So it doesn't matter what you believe, but if you're sincere about it, then that becomes for you the absolute truth. Um, and, and a lot of the reasons they've come to that is because of problems like evil and the existence of suffering in the world. Uh, 29% of Generation Z have trouble believing in a God because of those things. Uh, One-third of non-Christian teens, they can't be ultimately known to them. Secondly, while Generation Z is less likely than previous generations to claim a church uh, affiliation, they still think hypocrisy is a huge thing among Christians. And the, the history of injustices with the church and within the church bothers 15%. Of, of surveyed teens today. And that's not just the unchurched that are exhibiting less interest in spiritual ideas and institution. Those trends go into the lives of Christian teens today. My, my daughters, your children as well. Um, a place to find answers to live a meaningful life, things that are relevant to their life. You know, they, they've been raised to know that comes from God's Word and the church. But half of students today believe the Bible has inconsistencies when they compare it with science. That churchgoers are hypocritical in their practice. 30%, 36% of teens today believe that, that are Christian kids. Um, and that tells us that even kids that grow up in a Christian home are at risk. And it impacts most of the point that they're more atheistic or agnostic in their beliefs. And I look at the world today and the things that people talk about, and I realize um, people are interested in spiritual things. In fact, as I talk to you, you might be fascinated by the spiritual. There's a desire uh, to get in touch with something that is spiritually significant because you know, just by your own experience, the physical world, your career, your relationships, uh, they alone are never meant to satisfy you. You feel a void inside of you that you need to get in touch with something. And I just want to ask, you know, have you ever considered truly opening the pages of Scripture and seeing what God has to say? 
I, I always believe that's where true spirituality is found. And you could say, you know, no, I've done the church thing. You know, I've done the Bible thing. I've done the prayer thing. Um, but, but I see people in the church. I see where it gets them. And, you know, forget it. If that's true spirituality, I don't want any part of it. Besides, from all that I've learned, God is awfully narrow and strict. On television, they say I can get in touch with the spiritual that's inside of me. And, and that's more what I'm interested in. You know, all, the, all of the calm, uh, meditating apps that I can download, the things that help me get in touch with the Spirit inside me, that's really what I want to know more about. Well, let me just ask you, which of these is right? Connecting with the Spirit within, you know, discovering that and having some sort of spirituality on your own, or connecting with the Word of the one true living God, which is right? You know, if the Bible is right, then the other is wrong. And you don't want to make a grave mistake. So, so see what the Bible says and know what God says. Then you can make up your mind. At least then you'll know the end of the path that you've chosen to take. Now, we've been studying this book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And we just left Genesis 3, really, where sin was introduced into the world through Adam and Eve listening to the serpent really listening to his, his lies. And now we are in Genesis chapter 4, and God gives us the account of where civilization begins, the, the genesis of civilization, the genesis of cities. And, and he shows us how it all starts. Now, remember in Genesis 3, Adam would name his wife what? Eve, because she is the mother of all living. So Adam and Eve are the parents of all living from Genesis 3 forward. And all the way through the Bible, they are the earthly parents. If we could trace our genealogy all the way back before the flood, uh, we're going to find ourselves in Noah. We're going to find ourselves ultimately all the way back to Adam and Eve and our family tree. Uh, they are in the genealogy of Mary, who would give birth to Jesus. And in our, in our chapter today, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it said, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. I mean, you could hear, right, the excitement in Eve's voice. I produced a man. And she's interested in producing that because she was standing there, I believe, when God spoke to the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, when God said to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, the woman's seed. He's going to bruise you on the head. You will bruise him on the heel. You see, Eve knows she's going to have a seed, and that seed is going to be masculine. He is the woman's seed. He will bruise the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's seed. The woman's seed is going to be a man. And she knows the consequences of her sin. She knows what's happened because she listened to the liar, the father of lies. She understands what separation from God is about. She understands what death is now. And she can see the change in the cool wind that's come into the Garden of Eden. She feels the chill in her own physical frame of the future. And she knows that the world is permeated now because of her sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. 
We talked before how if we could go back, we really can't blame Adam and Eve because it would have all played out just the same if it was Bill and Cheryl, you know, in the Garden of Eden or, or whomever you are. Romans 8.22 says, We know the whole creation groans and suffers because of sin. Not only were Adam and Eve kicked out of the perfect garden, but all of creation began to decay, right from the creation of the plant life to the animals in the garden. Eva's had to leave the Garden of Eden and leave the way to the Tree of Life because now it's been banned. An angel guards the way in flashing swords that are flaming back and forth, and she finds herself in a new environment. And how wonderful it is now to have Cain to have seed. How wonderful to have a young man, this young man who could potentially bruise the head of the serpent. Now, you might think that carries it a bit too far, but another way you can look at the translation of the Hebrew there, and and this is in the inductive study Bible, and you might have that, but Genesis 4.1, it says, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord, or I've gotten a man. The word Lord is Yahweh. It is the holy name for God. I think to one degree or another, she understands something of the promise of Genesis 3.15. She knows that a deliverer, a Messiah, is coming. That the Lord was coming that, that will end the serpent's lies. And it could be that all of her hopes and all of her dreams were wrapped up in Cain. But as those of you who have children know, you know that son or daughter that you think can be such a great delight to your heart They can also bring to you some of the greatest pain and grief of your heart. Genesis chapter 4 verse 2 says again, She gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain, he was a tiller of the ground. Now, I just got my garden out with Cheryl this week. Got it just before the rain hit on Memorial Day. I love seeing it done. But I also know in just a matter of days, I'm going to see some weeds cropping up. And I can think that that first curse for that. And you think, well, why are they tilling the ground? Remember, the ground has been cursed. When Adam and Eve sinned, God turned to Adam and he gives him this word back in Genesis 3.17. He says, Adam, because you've sinned, listening to the voice of your wife, because you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, don't eat from it. Well, cursed is the ground because of you. And in toil eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you'll eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. And now you see Cain is the tiller of the ground. He's living in the consequence of sin. No longer is God supplying so easily the fruit of all the trees in the garden or the produce from the garden. Now they have to earn it by the sweat of their brow. And it causes a little conflict, I think, in marriage because the wife from now on will ask, how come you're always at work? You know, I'd like to spend a little more time with you. Why are you always out in, in the field? You know, it's, it's just injected there. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 through 12, uh, it gives the story of, you know, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh, you're going to rest. And at this point, Cain is is laboring. He's a tiller of the ground. Verses 3 and 4 of Genesis 4 says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. 
And Abel on his part also brought of the firstling of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. So I don't know how uh, God introduced this to them, but I can see them coming and building an altar, maybe even before what used to be the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And they come with their offering. They both approach Cain, the firstborn, Abel, the secondborn. As Cain comes, he heaps up a basket of produce uh, of the ground, beautiful fruit, grains, and greens, you know, and he gives them to the Lord on the altar. Then Abel comes, the secondborn. Abel's not a tiller of the ground. He's a keeper of the sheep, and he decides to give God a firstling of the flock, which is his best. You can see in Exodus and Leviticus, you know, later, God says the firstborn, that's, blo- that's what belongs to me. And when Abel makes the sacrifice to God, obviously, he's going to kill the lamb. He flays the lamb to remove its skin, and he doesn't take the fat. And for those of you that are, are dietitians, those of you that are watching your weight, even you guys know, you have to admit, when you're cooking, fat tastes good, right? Butter, cream, you saute something in fat, it tastes good. Uh, but, but Abel offers the fat also. And if you read about the offerings later in the book of Leviticus, you know that the fat, as well as the offering, belongs to the Lord. Uh, The people of Israel would not be permitted to eat the blood or the fat. So here's two offerings. Now, we don't know where God is, but they do, because he doesn't accept Cain's offering. He refuses it, but he accepts Abel's offering. And how does Cain react? Genesis 4, verse 5, But for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Cain became very angry. You can see it written all over his scowl, all over his face. He's no longer happy. He was no longer in a mood to worship or celebrate God. And it's all because God simply said, I don't accept your offering. Cain fumes. He stews. He becomes very angry. The word that's used is the Hebrew word kara. It implies red. It's the word meaning to glow. It means to grow warm, to blaze up. And and I literally think you can see all the blood rushing into Cain's face. He was absolutely livid. Now, Genesis 4, 6, the Lord says to Cain, Cain, why are you so angry? Why has your countenance fallen? You know, for God to ask you that, you must know that God knows Cain has no reason to be angry. So why is Cain angry? Verse 7 in the first part says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, you know, sin is like a tiger or it's like a lion. It's crouching at the door, ready to leap. Cain, its desire is for you. And that desire is the same word in Genesis 3. When God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. God is saying that sin's desire, it's to overtake you. It's to overrun you, to overrule you. It's longing to have you. And so God asked, Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Why are you so angry? And when God says, if you do not do well, it implies Cain knows what the right thing to do is. That's why God asked, why are you angry? God says, you know, here you are. You, you know what the right thing to do is. You brought me a basket of the labor of your hands. You till the ground and you brought it to me. So why are you angry when I don't accept it? But if you do well, 
I will accept it. If you do well, then you will be right. And verse 7 in the latter part is where he does say, if you don't do well, Cain's sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. I'm warning you, Cain, sin wants to get at you. It will consume you. It wants to have you. It wants to possess you. It wants to overrule what you know the right thing to do is. And you might look at the story and say, there's nothing wrong with what Cain did. I mean, he's sincere, right? I mean, he worked. He brought the work of his hands. It's a nice offering. At least he came to God, right? At least he brought God a sacrifice. There's nothing wrong with that. In your mind, there might not be anything wrong with it. He's doing right, he's doing well, and he's coming to God. But there is something terribly wrong with it. I think of Jesus in the temple courts as the offering is brought, and he sees the rich people coming before these trumpet-shaped depositories, and and, and they're throwing in their amount to be heard, clanging as it goes down. You know, they're raising a big sound so that everybody knows they're big spenders for God. And this little widow comes in with two mites, and it's all that she has. And, And Jesus says she's given more because she's given all that she has. And I think in that sense, Cain could have come with every bit of grain from the field and it still wouldn't have had the power of Abel's offering because of why and how he brought it to God. You see, now there is something terribly wrong with Cain's offering. And if I could boil it all down, it would be to say it this way. He's not coming to God God's way. You see, there's all to say about this spirituality. There's a difference between being simply spiritual. You can read about it in books. You can watch about it on television. But then there's a true spirituality in the Word of God. People that Jesus would say in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, you know, the time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father, not on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but those that truly worship do so in spirit and truth. And you might say, how, how do we know? Cain knew what to bring. Well, I think you look at the man's faith. And we have the benefit of knowing uh, the New Testament. Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith. It's the faith chapter of the Bible. It's repeated over and over uh, and even opens the chapter. And Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith, it's the assurance of things that you hope for, the conviction of things not seen. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If something is said, and if you're convicted that it's true, even though you don't see it, you live in the light of it. It's the assurance of something that you hope for. Maybe a word spoken that promises you, you know, this or that will happen. 2 Corinthians 5.8, the Apostle Paul says, uh, We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. The word promises you that if you believe in Jesus Christ. That when you die, you'll be absent from the body, but immediately in the presence of the Lord. It's the assurance of things hoped for. If you're facing death, or if you get a death sentence written over your life, just as one of my friends with cancer seems to have. Or a woman I know who proclaims frequent death sentences over her own life because of, of issues in her life. But faith is always taking God at His word. You might say, well, you know, I've got faith in other people. Well, you might have faith in somebody's teaching that that you need to get in touch with 
the mothership and follow it, right? <laughs> there are all sorts of winds of doctrine and teaching floating around like new age things. You can have faith in, in something somebody says, but the strength of faith is in the one who said it, the one who made the proclamation that you believe. And, and if you believe something that, that somebody in this world says, if you believe something that somebody came up with in their own passion or in their own imagination, but it's not substantiated in the Word of God, you're putting your faith on a dream. But Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. So God's Word has a track record. The person you might choose to believe in, you know, the teaching of an individual, it may not have a track record. God's Word does. And if you want to gain approval with God, you've got to believe Him. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he, he who comes to God must believe that He is, you know, that He is God, that He exists, and He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. There's a pursuing, an eager passion for God. Even the seeking of God is put within us to cause us to seek God. That's how the men of old gained approval. Now, verse 3 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's how we believe. The belief in creation boils down to a matter of faith. Are you going to take God at his word? Or not. You know, nobody was there to actually see it all happen except God. And so to me, you'd be smart to believe in the one who was the only eyewitness to it because he was there. Hebrews 11.4. Now, now this is where we connect with Genesis 4. Hebrews 11.4 says, It's by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testified about his gifts, and through faith, although Abel is dead, he still speaks. Abel brought the firstling of the flock, even though he was a tender of the sheep. Now, could he have brought grain? Could he have brought anything else? I don't think so. You know, one of, one of my favorite passages is in 2 Samuel 24, and it's when King David uh, is, is traveling, and he wants to build an altar to God. And there's a faithful servant uh, of King David there by the name of Aruna. And he wants to give him everything he needs. You know, he wants to give him uh, the oxen for the sacrifice, the yoke that the oxen have for the wood. You know, take this plot of ground. Take it all. Because he's just a faithful, loving servant of the king. But 2 Samuel 24, 24, uh, it says that the king replied to Aruna, No. I insist on paying you for it because I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. You see, I think he knew for it to be a true sacrifice, it had to cost him. He also knew then that, that it involved the shedding of blood because without the shedding of blood, there was no pleasing or approaching God. Remember where the first blood was shed? It was at the end of Genesis 3, when God removed the fig leaves that clothed Adam and Eve, and he clothed them with the skin of an animal. It was then that sacrifice involved death. Hebrews 11.4 said again, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. This is Old Testament, yet what is the first incident you see? A man offering a sacrifice who was a sinner. A man conceived, produced by Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12, remember what it said, Therefore, just as one through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all have sinned. So here's Abel, who's a sinner. Here's Cain, who's a sinner. And Abel offered by faith a sacrifice to God according to the word of God. And God declared him righteous. No works involved, but simply approaching God his way. Friends, that is true spirituality. And Hebrews 11:4 at the second part said, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. But that's not the end of the story because of Cain, is it? The way of Abel is a righteous way, and he was declared righteous. The way of Cain is spoken of in the scripture as well, but you don't get it until the book that we just finished before Genesis. Remember we did a study through the book of Jude. In Jude, it's just one chapter, but verse 4, it says, Certain people have crept in among you unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into a licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And more is written about these men in verse 11. Woe to them because they've gone the way of Cain. So the Bible talks about the way of Abel. Now it talks about, in Jude 11, the way of Cain. And it's thinking that you can only get to God and attain true spirituality on your own way, apart from the Bible, apart from what God has shared with you, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way of Cain. That's one of the things that I think it ends up so close to that book of Revelation to end the scriptures as well. Because even as the end times are upon us, more and more people will believe that real spirituality comes from within you. That you come on your own terms to God rather than coming to God on His terms. About seven years ago, you know, we as a church spoke out against homosexuality and lesbianism. Uh, We talked about God's love for people. And God's forgiveness as well and the struggle that so many have. And yet opponents came back and just said, why do you Christians think that all of this is wrong? And another, Christian, another person said, you know what, I'm, I believe I'm a Christian and I'm a lesbian and a lifestyle. I'm perfectly content. Why, who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? And, and I would continue to give the same answer today that I gave then. It's not something I'm coming up with. It's something that God has spoken clearly to in his word. And I can come to God for strength. I can come to God for forgiveness, but it's got to be on his terms. There may be another group out there that think, you know, if God is God, why does he allow evil to triumph so much in this world? And that's a little short-sighted because we're not done yet. (laughs) Or, Or why do we allow evil men to triumph in this world? Why didn't God just move and wipe it all out? Uh, that's what's addressed in, in this marvelous chapter in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel as they bring their offering to God. Abel brings this animal sacrifice as his offering, and God says it's a righteous sacrifice. God made him an example so that his faith would speak to us today. But when Cain brings 
his offering, the fruit of the ground, God won't accept it. And as a result, Cain is angry, his countenance falls, and we ask, what's the big deal? Again, it's because he wanted to come to God on his terms and on his own way. He had a, he had a, a way and a plan to come to God. He felt like it was perfectly fine. And God, you should accept my sacrifice. This is what I do. And he had a chance to repent even, but he didn't. Verse 5 in, in Genesis 4, it says, But for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. And so Cain was angry. His countenance fail, fell. But the Lord said to him, Cain, why be so angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, in other words, God's giving that chance at repentance. Will not your countenance be lifted up? I want you to be lifted up, Cain. I want you to come to me in the right way. But if you don't, you know, to do well, again, it's to come in a way that God prescribes. And it would have been better for Cain to go to Abel and say, you know, Abel, I've got to give God a blood offering. I've got to give him an animal sacrifice. And, and I need one of your sheep. In fact, here's what I'll do. We'll make a deal. I'll give you some of my grain. I'll give you some of my weed. I'll give you fruit. I'll pay for it in exchange for a lamb because I've got to go to God too. I've got to come to God this way. And if I just go with, with what I've got in my hands right now, just the, the grain, he won't take it because it involves death to be forgiven. That's repentance. It's a change of mind that results in a change of direction. If, if I'm walking in the wrong direction, friend, and I realize it so that I stop and turn the other way, then my change of direction can save my life. And here Cain, God calls him to turn around and go the other way. And yet Cain says, no, I, I, I don't want to. He doesn't say, okay, God, you know, I was wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll come your way. Instead, he folds his arms. He gets very angry, very hot, and God warns him in, in verse 7, Cain, you don't see it, but I do. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you've got to master it. If you don't master that sin, if you don't uncross your arms and just open them before me, it's going to control you, and it's going to bring destruction into your life. And I wish that Cain would have listened. I wish I would have listened so many times when my arms have been crossed, because rebellion always has a price. Verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother. I wonder what that conversation was like. But it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. You know, what did Cain tell him? All we can imply from the text is that Cain told his brother, you know, I went to God and you, would you believe it? He wouldn't accept my sacrifice. I mean, I can see him mad. I can see him raging, coming to Abel, looking for some sympathy and saying, you know what? I brought God a sacrifice. I saw him accept yours. But do you think he could accept mine? No, you know. He told me sin was crouching at my door. He didn't say anything about your door. He said its desire was for me and I had to master it. You can almost hear Abel saying, then brother, why don't you take a sacrifice? Why don't you just do what you're supposed to do? But they both knew what they were supposed to do. Verse 4, remember again Hebrews 11, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testified about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Abel spoke. 
Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God, and so he declared him righteous. Cain, though, he is so angry, he's blinded to the truth. And in that blindness, what does he do? Out in the field, in the world outside of Eden, Cain kills his brother. Maybe he picks up a rock in the field. Maybe he strangles him. We really don't know. But Cain's gone his own way. Romans 6.23 tells us that the payoff of, of choosing our own way, the wages of sin, is death. It doesn't always imply to us that it's our own spiritual death. It sometimes involves the death of other people. James chapter 1 verse 14 says, Each one of us is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when that lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin's accomplished, it brings forth death. And friends, when we don't control our desires, when we don't control our temptation, it leads to sin, and sin produces death. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. In Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us that when we don't come to God God's way, that's always the result. Romans 10, verse 1 and 2 says, brethren, my heart's desire And my prayer to God for them, in other words, for his Israelite brothers, it's for their salvation. Because I can testify about them. They've got zeal for God. But it's not in accordance with knowledge. Do you think Cain had a sense, had a zeal for God? I think he did. I think just like everybody else that's walked this earth, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know, he had an innate hunger for the spiritual. But the problem is, He wanted it on his own terms. He wanted God according to his own reasoning and his own knowledge, his own understanding. He didn't want the straight and narrow path. He wanted to come to God in a way that that suited his lifestyle rather than a way that followed God's example as he killed the animal to clothe Adam and Eve. Paul's talking about the same thing here. People that have a zeal for God, but it's not according to real sense and sensibility and knowledge. Romans 10.3 says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Does that describe Cain? Yes. He's seeking a righteousness of his own, but he wouldn't submit himself or bow or bend. He's like Naaman the Syrian that was told to go and baptize himself in the Jordan River to dip there to, to have his leprosy healed. And yet at first he he balked at it and he said, we've got better rivers back home. I mean, why would I go down to the Jordan River for this? And his servant told him, you know, if God would have asked you to do something grand, wouldn't you have done it? I mean, this is so simple. And, And he does and he's healed. Cain, though, he won't do it. He's going to stand firm with his arms folded and pridefully say, God, I'm going to come to you my way or I'm not going to come at all. A sin was crouching at his door and the next thing you know, He's out in the field with his brother, and then he kills. He becomes the first murderer of his brother. Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, it's a matter of faith. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness that's based on the law will live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? Well, the word is near you, 
It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Paul goes on to talk about salvation, but but what is salvation here? Friends, it's all a matter of faith. It's not about you bringing God down to your level, uh, out of heaven for some spiritual mode, or, or building your own kind of altar. It's not a matter of bringing God up out of some abyss and, and saying, God, you've got to be better than that in my life. It's simply saying and knowing, God, this is who you revealed yourself to be. This is your word, your holy Bible. And when Jesus came to this earth, God, it was you, you in the flesh. And Jesus stands at the throne of God with his arms, not folded, but with his arms outstretched. And in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you think God is bigoted, friends, if you think God is narrow-minded, you need to understand God is someone who knows. He doesn't just think his way is the only way. His way is the only way because he is God and you are not. If he is God, if he is the creator, then he has the right to proclaim there's only one way to approach God, and and that's the way we do it. Cain would not acknowledge that God was God, and so he wouldn't submit to him. And God warns him, if you don't don't do that, sin is going to devour you. And Cain talked to his brother in anger and told him what God had done. The anger and sin came over him, and suddenly it bled out of him to violence upon his brother simply because... There was a day, there was a time, there was an opportunity to come to God his way. But Cain refused to do it. And now Cain has a dead brother. And what does God say to him in verse 9 of Genesis 4? God says to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And that where question is the same kind of question Adam and Eve heard as they hid from God. When God said, where are you? You know, if only Cain would have fallen to his feet over the carcass of his brother and cried, God, I killed my brother. God, God, I was carried away. You were right. Sin mastered me. It was crouching at the door and I let it take hold of me. Look what I've done. I made a mess of it. What would God have done? I think God could have forgiven Cain because God is a gracious God. He gave Cain the opportunity to do well. It wasn't the offering per se. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs, it's never going to take away sin. It's not fruit versus blood. It's not grain versus blood. It's obedience. It's believing in God and it's saying, God, that's what you say. That's what your book says. You're God and I'm going to believe you. You say, this is the way, and I'm going to walk in it. You say, this is the way, so I'm not going to turn to the right or the left. God, you say, this is the way, and I'll observe and do all that's according to your will, because you're God. There's a whole world out there that's going to think God and and we are bigoted and narrow-minded, and there's a whole world that doesn't understand We have to understand some principles. As Cain rose up and put Abel to death, the world wants to get rid of us as well. 
In John 15, Jesus made a statement as he was getting ready to go to the cross. He knows the time has come, and as Zechariah said, to smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And he wants to prepare his disciples. And in John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you can have peace. In this world you'll have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. What does Jesus prepare them for? John 15, verse 16 and 17 says, You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed, I ordained you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Friends, that's the command of Jesus, that you love one another. And in 1 John 3, Cain is mentioned again. And I find it interesting that a man who's just mentioned in one chapter at the beginning of the Bible is used as an example to tell us that we're not to go the way of Cain two different times later on. In 1 John 3, verse 10, it says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. What makes it obvious as to whether you belong to God or whether you belong to the devil. Cain was of the evil one by choice. What makes the difference? What makes us obvious? Anyone who does not practice righteousness. That means habitually. It's a present tense verb. It's a habit of life. It's not from God. Nor does the one who does not love, present tense, his brother. Here's the narrow, the right way. The path that God says you're to take. If you do not habitually practice righteousness to walk in his path, then friends, it says you don't belong to God. It doesn't matter what you say or how spiritual you feel. It doesn't matter that you claim that you and God have an understanding, you know, that, yeah, I do this, but it's okay. Uh, I'm perfectly all right, so just leave me alone. I'm as good as anybody else is. It doesn't matter. If you're not habitually walking in righteousness or practicing God's way, you're telling God, it's my way or the highway. 1 John 3.11, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. For this is the message you've heard that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. John 15.18, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you're of this world, you would, it would love you as its own. But remember, you're not of the world, but I chose you. you. You remember, you didn't choose me. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So remember the word I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll be coming for you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. When Cain spoke to, to Abel, if he had mastered sin... If he would have done what God said, he would have never slain Abel. Luke 11, verse 47 says, Woe to you. Uh, Jesus is talking to the Jews. He said, You build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So consequently, you're witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, you who built their tombs. For this reason, the wisdom of God said, I'll send to them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill, some of them they will prosecute, so the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world, it can be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel 
to the blood of Zechariah that was killed between the altar and the house of God. I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Cain slew Abel because Abel's deeds were righteous. Jesus was slain by his brothers. It says he came to his own and his own received him not. They slew him because he was righteous. Because they would not submit to God or come to God on his terms. So friends, if you don't learn anything else from the study of Cain, learn this. God is God and there is no other. There is no other way to accept him except through Jesus Christ. Anyone who tries to come any other way will perish. Sin will be crouching at their door. Sin will master you when you refuse to obey God. It will overtake you and it will get worse and worse and worse. And in Genesis 4, you find there's death, there's death, and there's death. In Genesis 4, 8, and then if you jump down to verse 23, it says, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, I killed a man because he wounded me. I killed a boy because he struck me. When we don't submit to God eventually, it brings hatred. It brings animosity to anybody who gets in our way. That's, not, that's the way of Cain, thinking you can come to God anyway and not loving your brother or being an example. When you, don't end up, you know, when you don't love your brother and you end up murdering him, you watch. You'll find persecution against Christians who stand for the fact that there's one way for God, and you'll see it. Abel died, but he was righteous. And, and what happened when he died? He went to the place that would eventually be called Abraham's bosom. He was far better off than the world that happened as a result of Cain. The society that came even when Lamech murdered a young man for striking him, when he killed a, a man for wounding him. He would say in Genesis 4.24, if Cain's avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 70-fold, uh, 77-fold, 70 times 7, you know. It's not a just judgment because even in sin, God is just. In Exodus, he'll say eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Never does he say 77-fold. God says, forgive. Cain should have had God's forgiveness. He could have done so well. The stem of violence in this world could have been caught early. All he had to do was repent and come to God his way. And that's what we often forget. That God is God and we're just people. We don't, we don't set the way. We don't set the path. We don't set the offering or the fact that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. God sets it. We need to bow the knee. But when we do, we can expect there's going to be the canes of this world that come after us. But a holy God hears the cries of Abel's blood, and he hears the cry of the blood of the prophets down through the ages, and he hears our blood as well. And a just judgment is coming. Even as he heard his son's cry from Calvary, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. God offers forgiveness if we'll come to him his way. And Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And those that come to me, I will no wise cast out. So friends, I just want to pray for you today. Uh, welcome home. Let's close. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time to come before you in your word. I want to thank you for your mercy and your long-suffering, that even though you're a God that demands just, justice, even though you're a God that's described in Scripture as, as God of fire, 
that, that a God of jealousy for his people. Lord, we know we're sinners. We know we fall short of your glory. We want to come to you based on the blood of Jesus Christ. We want to come to you in your way and humble ourselves and ask not only for the flood of your mercy and forgiveness to cover our sin, but that, Father, you help us by your Holy Spirit to walk in your righteousness, that we can live according to your way. I pray that for myself. I pray that for my brothers and sisters and guests that are online right now listening, for you are the one over us. And I pray this until we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless each of you.